Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to this episode of the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vincent. You can find us and other podcasts at reformpodcast.com. Also check out our blog at theparticularbaptist.net, which should be up now. We're having issues with it uh, this week. And if you would like to support our ministry, a great way to do that is to head on over to patreon.com forward slash the particular Baptist, where you can uh, support us. And we, I want to thank those who already do support us for your dedication uh, and your assistance in our work. We greatly appreciate that, uh, and thank you for your support. Uh, the Reformed Berean, good afternoon. Good afternoon to you. Thank you for joining the show today. I hope it is helpful. Uh, now, today we're going to be talking about uh, cessationism, and I want to you know, dive into this a little bit. It's not going to be an exhaustive approach to cessationism. Uh, that's not the the goal. But before we do that, I want to address something um, You, for my listeners. You, if you follow me on Twitter, my personal account, not the particular Baptist account, uh, you may have seen I posted uh, a screenshot of John MacArthur's entry on Wikipedia, or at least part of it. Um, I went to, to look up something about John MacArthur. And I happened to notice that Wikipedia said that, oh, he's a Reformed Baptist. And I just was pointing out that that's, you know, that's not the case. And, you know, it, it got some pretty good traction on Twitter. Um, and I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but there was some negative feedback. Um, I want to address some of it just, just very briefly before we get into indoor discussion. So I asserted that John MacArthur is not Reformed. He's not a Reformed Baptist. Uh, and a gentleman named Jeremy Brown. I don't know who this gentleman is. Never met him before. Uh, it, yeah, I, I don't know who he is. Uh, he said, I agree and disagree. Historically would agree with you that MacArthur is not reform. The majority of people who are alive and breathing today that speak English would say the word reform just means Calvinistic soteriology. In that sense, MacArthur is reformed. So there seems to be this understanding that you can be reformed and a Calvinist without holding to other core tenets of reformed theology. You don't have to hold to any kind of reformed covenant theology, but you can still, as, as long as you're holding to a Calvinistic soteriology, the tulip system at the very least, you're okay, right? Uh, I don't think that's right. And the more I study uh, historical theology surrounding especially the post-Reformation period, I, I, I can't escape the conclusion that we can't be calling ourselves Reformed if you don't hold to the system the Reformers did. And this would include uh, even fall under the umbrella of the particular Baptist. Now, that doesn't mean you have to be particular Baptist to be Reformed, but I do think that you know these are different veins of the same essential system and theological tradition. Uh, you know, you have a covenant theology, you have the regulative principle of worship, you have a confession, a reform confession that you're holding to, uh, and there might be some other things that are in there. Um, and I, you know, I stand by that assertion that I do not believe that John MacArthur, as good of a brother as he is, and he is a brother, and I know I've benefited quite a bit from him, uh, and I, there are many others who have benefited from him, but I think we have to be careful about putting labels um, uh, that are not accurate. And it, I think when we're looking at the reform, I know that when we're looking at reform, we have to understand that terminology within its historical context. We can't just say, well, the majority sub who subjectively put a definition onto a particular term that's been used a certain way throughout history and it and means something. We can't just import our own theological subjective assumptions onto it in modernity and then put it onto that term and say, well, that's what it means. Uh, we can't make that distinction, right? There has to be a distinction between the subjective meaning that people put to a term and its objective meaning uh, as it relates to its historical usage. Uh, so we, we have to be really, really careful when we're using uh, that terminology. It, people do that today, especially with the doctrine of God. I've seen Owen Strand, who calls himself a Reformed Baptist. You know, his I believe in, in divine simplicity, 
but I don't believe that God's attributes are one. I believe that they're, you know, they're really distinct. That's not believing in classical theism. That's not believing in simplicity because it has its definition rooted in its historical reality. Same with uh, reform. You know, I, I believe in TULIP, but I'm a hardcore dispensationalist. You're not reformed because you deny a core tenet of what it means to be reformed, which is to hold to uh, a reformed covenant theology. Uh, so you have to, you know, we have to be just really careful how we're defining these terms and not just throwing around, um, you know, the term reformed to people and just say, well, you know, yeah, they're, you know, he's reformed, but really is he? Really is he? Objectively speaking, looking at that. When you say that you are reformed, someone puts reformed in a church, like a, a reformed Presbyterian or um, you know, reformed Baptist, we're identifying with a specific tradition. And because we're identifying a specific tradition, it has to be defined in light of its historical usage uh, within that tradition. Uh, so just very, very brief notes on that um, as we go into this. And Reform Brian said, yeah, I make that distinction. I just say people are lowercase reform, LOL. You just have a Calvinist soteriology. Yeah, and, and that's probably okay to do um, as long as it's abundantly clear that you don't mean that they are reformed in the sense of, uh, you know, its objective definition, right? Uh, so it just has to be, you know, a, a careful usage of the term. Um, I don't think we should define the term based on what the majority of people today think. I think that's uh, honestly quite ridiculous. Uh, we should utilize the objective meaning of the term and apply it uh, correctly. Um, but as I guess as long as you're quantifying it, you know, in this way, that's that's probably okay as long as it's clear what is being meant by it. But anyways, just some, you know, just something to throw on the side there. Um, all right, so diving into our actual topic today. So we're we're talking about cessationism. This is a word that uh, you know gets people passionate and is a controversial discussion. There was just there was a documentary um, that came out on it recently, cessationist or the cessation. I don't know. I haven't watched it yet. Uh, I'll be honest with you, but it's been going around. I think at G three they were uh, they were putting it out, but. It is uh, a pretty popular film at this point. Um, so I guess now is a good time to talk about it, or, or at least the topic of cessationism. So just real briefly, I'm going to be referring to different sources today. And, and like last week, I'm going to be doing some reading. <laughs> it's when you're making an argument, it's always good to uh, establish, you know, your argument based on credible sources. I'm not I don't want to just throw things out there uh, without any kind of either scriptural with scriptural and or historical backing. So we, you know, I want to make sure that my listeners are understanding that in, and I want you guys to actually hear these things. I'm not making this stuff up, right? That, that's really where I want to come from too. Um, as I'm using historical sources or other sources, um, you know, this is not me just speaking on my own terms. I am, utilizing credible sources here. So I will be reading some today. So bear with me on that. Uh, hopefully I don't put everybody to sleep. But I use um, O'Parmer Robinson's book, The Final Word. This is published by Banner of Truth, uh, a biblical response to the case for tongues and prophecy today. This is a really helpful work. Um, I don't know if I would agree with every conclusion that he has in here as it relates. To, I, don't, I don't know if his uh, argumentation is always as airtight as it could be, but I agree with his, I, I would say that I would agree with his, um, you know, general principles about uh, that tongues and prophecy, at least prophecy as it relates to new revelation, immediate revelation coming from God inspired revelation uh, have ceased and that uh, tongues have ceased as well. So I'm going to be referring to this uh, from a historical perspective, looking, this is, Garnet Howard Milne's book, The Westminster Confession of Faith and the Cessation of Special Revelation, uh, talking about distinctives within uh, the Puritan tradition, particularly the Westminster Divines, on the gifts uh, like prophecy, um, new revelation, etc. This is a really helpful work, and I'm going to be talking about this today um, as we go through. And then, of course, 
Jim Renahan's to the Judicious Impartial Reader. Get this if you don't have it. This is invaluable. This is an excellent work. Founders, you can find it on their website and you might be able to find it on Amazon. But anyways, uh, just some basic principles before we dive in. The concept of uh, the concept of cessationism, as it tends to be called, is not a conclusion that can be arrived at from express scripture. Just from just by looking at explicit passages of scripture, you cannot get this view. Okay, it's a position based on what is necessarily contained in the holy scriptures. Now, this makes the argument harder to prove. It makes it the theological position. Um, harder to explain because you have to go through all these different rabbit holes and be able to pull all of them together in a coherent way that's consistent with the express passages of Scripture. But you're not going to find some proof text that proves in and of itself, you know, well, the Scriptures say, um, you know, the gifts have ceased explicitly in this way. No, it, it's gathering other parts of scripture and putting them together and taking the meaning of those passages and putting them together to come up with a system of cessationism. So I want to be clear about that. Um, and that's consistent in terms of how you get to that point. That is consistent with a reformed understanding of scripture that the Westminster Confession calls good and necessary consequence. The second London Baptist Confession of Faith says necessarily contained. Uh, I think our confession, the latter one, does it better. Uh, it expresses the meaning of that better, but it really isn't anything essentially different from the Westminster Confession of Faith in terms of uh, what it means. In other words, the meaning of the term uh, or the meaning of an expressed passage that might not be in the explicit words of the text, but what can be derived from it is also scripture uh, and has just as much authority as the explicit passage. So cessationism is rooted in biblical authority, um, but you're not going to find some cherry-picked uh, proof text that's going to be able to uh, seal the deal and have a smoking gun. You have to do the work to actually pull these biblical principles together in a coherent way. So that's something important I want to I want to bring out. Um, cessationism, and then number two, cessationism as popularized by MacArthur, just talking about him. Uh, in those in his circle in our day, um, has really, I think, been the standard in reform circles uh, as to how to approach that issue. You know, we have uh, MacArthur's book, Strange Fire. I'm looking at it right now on my shelf. Uh, there was a Strange Fire conference. I remember that was a big deal. Um, and MacArthur's people really went after continuationism. And I think really what they were trying to address uh, you know, you had Jordan Peterson, Clouds Without Water, uh, lots of and there's a lot of good stuff in the material that they've given. Um, I think a lot of good stuff. Um, now, Strange Fire, I don't know if that's a specific book against cessation or continuationism, but I, I think some of the principles um, could be drawn from there to apply to this. But I think MacArthur's work since it came out macarthur's work on the issue kind of in the in the grace to you grace community church uh community that put all this together i think has kind of been the standard and what this looks like um so again that's not to say there aren't any helpful things from them um, but i think a, a better understanding of if we're looking at uh, the concept of cessationism not only for, from a biblical perspective, but from a reformed tradition perspective, we should look at this uh, in terms of how did the people who framed some of these important reform confessions would have looked at these things. Okay. We talk about things like immediate versus immediate revelation. What does that mean? What's the difference? Why is that important? Um, and I think we, at the very least, should have a basic understanding of the reform discussions surrounding this issue. And that it was not monolithic. And I'm uh, at this will be the final point of my uh, episode today is looking at some of the, the historical stuff surrounding the in the Puritan tradition within uh, the Westminster divines that they didn't all agree on this issue, that there were some continuationist understandings uh, in Puritan thought uh, that 
they didn't have this understanding that we, I think a lot of quote unquote Calvinistic uh, and reform Christians might have today in terms of what cessationism looks like. It's not cut and dry. Okay. It's, it's quite confusing and messy. Uh, so I think we need to, when we're talking about these issues, I think it's important to understand them as ref, especially as reformed Christians in light of some of the historical developments and discussions and controversies. So we're going to look at some of that today as we go through this. Um, and I honestly, this was, I think the first time that I was even made aware of these as uh, you know, as I was preparing for this and, uh, and looking at these, I saw somebody, um, you know, talking about some differences between Westminster divines and among reformed tradition on Twitter about it, and just kind of got me thinking. Okay, maybe it is something we need to to start looking at. Um, and that's really what led me to get this book from Milne because I saw it recommended, uh, and it's like, oh, this is I think something that could be helpful. So we'll be looking at some of that um, today. All right, so I want to look at two different things when we're talking about cessationism. I think probably the two biggest ones are going to be prophecy and tongues. I mean, you have um, healing, you have miracles, but I, I'm not going to focus on that today. Um, I mean, th this episode would probably go on forever if I exhausted every aspect of continuationism versus cessationism. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I want to talk about tongues. And I want to talk about prophecy. Um, so, and this is not going to be super long. I just want to, um, you know, at least hit some of these high points. Um, so uh, let's see, Reform Berean. Again, please put in your comments in the chat. If you're listening on Facebook, you can put it in the comments on the on the video itself. Uh, if you're on YouTube, you just put it in the live chat and I'll be able to see them. Uh, and if you're on YouTube, you can also do a super chat option. It should be available uh, so your comments uh, can be seen by me. Or I, I can prioritize those comments. See, Reform Brian, I have a rare view of tongues and prophecy. I believe tongues are actual languages, and if the Spirit wishes to give the gift to someone, he can, but probably out in the mission field, not necessarily normal. Okay. Okay. Uh, that's definitely a, a particular uh, understanding of that. Um, and again, even in the, in the historically, the Reform tradition has not seen a monolithic understanding of. Uh, the gifts, as we will say. So we'll start with tongues. So tongues were used for edification, okay, within the early church. Uh, if it could be interpreted, only if it could be interpreted. We'll see this in 1 Corinthians uh, 14. And I see, I am here to speak in tongues. Ha! All right, put your babble in the chat, and we'll uh, I'll try to interpret it for you. Um, in light of 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, let's see. So tongues were used for edification if one could interpret it, right? Especially, uh, you know, prophecy was another aspect of this too, but tongues were used for edification um, for believers, and it could be interpreted to see primarily for personal edification and to reveal something that God had said, okay? So this is, you can see this from 1 Corinthians 14, 1 through 5. It says, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied, for he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. So you can see tongues and prophecy being kind of handled at the same time here by Paul, but clearly tongues uh, were used, at least in the Corinthian church, as a way to edify oneself. I mean, if you're speaking in a foreign language that no one can understand, it's not really helping anybody else around you. Um, and then, you know, we'll see later, or we'll see that uh, they're actually a uh, kind of a sign to unbelievers as well, right? 
And there needed to be some kind of interpretation there and done in an orderly way. Or Paul said, you'd all look like complete morons and idiots babbling all over the place and nothing is happening decently and in order. So it was to edify oneself. But, you know, it, it essentially is better if someone interpreted it and prophecy is better in Paul's eyes because everyone can understand what's going on. And it's for everybody. It's not just for you. And you don't look like idiots if no one can interpret it. Right. So what Paul is doing here is he's trying to establish church order, right? The church is not a wild house where people are running around and doing all kinds. I mean, you see in some of these um, these churches that do have some sort of, uh, you know, continuation, some of them at least. I'm not going to I'm not going to broad brush, but, you know, you see some of these that have some kind of, oh, the spirit's moving and they're getting wild and they're shaking and they're jumping all over. The, that's not Paul is not into any of that. Even if gifts uh, of the gift of tongues uh, was here today and people and the spirit was moving, there would have to be some sort of order. There isn't chaos. Okay? That, that's Paul's ultimate point here. He's trying to establish church order in utilizing these things in an orderly way that doesn't make the church look like a bunch of buffoons, right, to the outside and ultimately to do what is glorifying uh, to God. So tongues were used for edification. Okay. So that's, uh, that's one aspect of this. Number two, tongues were actual languages, not Babel. Okay. Uh, and you can see this, uh, you know, Robinson in, in his book here, page 35, uh, he says that the Greek for other tongues in Acts 2, 4 and first Corinthians 14, 21 are almost identical. So you can see that, um, you know, when we're talking about, uh, languages that they're, they're parallel here. So 1 Corinthians 14, 21, in the law it is written with men of other tongues and other lips, I will speak to this people, and yet for all that they will not hear me, says the Lord. And then Acts 2, 4, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord and in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as a fire. And one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So, you know, the, this concept of, of tongues has to do with languages. It's not babble. And again, one thing that you see uh, in, in modern, uh, one thing that you do see in modern uh, Pentecostalism or modern continuationism is... You, they're just babbling. All the I'm speaking in tongues, yeah, 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 blah, 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 blah. And there, there's there's no real languages going on here, and there's no one who's necessarily trying to interpret it either. Um, so th there's all kinds of problems here that you can see. They were actual languages. That's what happened at Pentecost when the Spirit was moving. They were speaking in other tongues, and people heard this people speaking in their own tongue, in their own language. It was a known language. It wasn't Babel, okay? It wasn't Babel. Uh, Reformed Berean, yes, I always said, Apostle Paul walked into the church to say that basically everyone speaks in tongues. Paul would ask if they read his letter to the Corinthians because they were like Corinth. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, did you actually try to have any kind of church order? Because uh, that's at the end of the day, that's Paul's point. Paul is not trying to focus on the gifts as such. Paul is uh, trying to establish church order, right? Let everything be done decently and in order. He's giving rules for how the church is to conduct themselves in their worship. Okay. That principle, at the very least, we can take away from 1 Corinthians 14, uh, whether or not you believe that the gifts are continued or not. Um, yeah, that, that's very true. Today, you just don't see this order um, at least probably with some of the extreme examples, you don't see order. It's just chaos and wild and people running around and falling on the floor and shaking. And it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's not in the spirit of what Paul is saying at all, but they'll focus on the tongues part. They'll focus on the prophecy part, but they'll forget about the, uh, the church order part for some weird reason. So yeah, good point. All right. Number three. Tongues were a sign that pointed to something else, okay? And I think this is key when we're talking about the continuation of the gift itself, okay? Um, when we're thinking about a, a sign, 
signs don't continue beyond the thing pointed to in terms of their usage, right? Um, for those who live in the D.C. area, like I, I live in the Washington, D.C. area, work in D.C., um, 495 is part of the Capitol Beltway. It's a big road that goes around the district. You can get to Maryland, Virginia, D.C. from there. But if I see a sign that says 495 North and I hit that road, I go to that road and it's already been reached. I don't need that sign anymore. Why? Because I've already made it to that point, right? I already made it to that point. All right. So in terms of looking at tongues, that's how we can, you know, that's one aspect that we can look at it with. It's a sign that points to something. And once that thing has been reached, that particular medium or that gift or whatever the case might be is no longer needed. And so we shouldn't expect it to continue on, um, you know, as we go through. Uh, George Walsh said, does Daniel 942b to seal up vision and prophecy to anoint most holy mean the canon was completed uh, and sealed by 70 AD? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, that might get into discussions of, you know, full preterism versus partial preterism. Um, I mean, because I think the book of Revelation has been dated to 90 AD after the destruction of 70 AD or the destruction of Jerusalem. Um, so I don't know if I could give you a straight answer on that, uh, but I, I think you would run into the preterist discussion at that point uh, with that question. Thank you for your question, George. Uh, if we're looking at uh, tongues or a sign that point is something else, right? Uh, so in the New Testament, we see the Spirit accompanying the work of tongues and always in a special way, right? It's never seen as something um, that is ordinary or distinct from the work of establishing the church. Okay, that's very important to remember as we're going through this, okay? And we, we see this principle in Acts 2, if we look at Acts 2, 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all in one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So something special was happening here, okay? This was not uh, in an ordinary act of God. This was extraordinary. Something big was happening. This was signaling a change that was taking place. So we can see that the Spirit is involved in here, giving these people utterance, giving them revelation, giving them the ability to do these things, and it's tied to extraordinary events. Okay, And then later on in the same passage, we see Peter referencing the prophet Joel, who ties this work to the Spirit. Okay, you can see it's Acts 2, 14 through 21. Okay, so there are no tongues in the spiritual sense apart from the special working of the Holy Spirit. And that's what the whole point of uh, Peter tying this event of prophecy, prophesying and tongue speaking back to Joel. This was prophesied in the Old Testament. This was something that was coming. It was to you know signal that something big was happening here, right? This was just not any work of the Spirit, okay? It was specifically for establishing the Church of God, given the context it happened in, uh, in what we find happening uh, as a result of it, in being tied to it, okay? So this wasn't done in a vacuum, right? So that's important to remember. Uh, what we see here, first of all, is that the gospel had gone to the Jews first, okay? If we look at Luke 24, 44 through 49, it says, then he said to them, these are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which are which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. Then he said to them, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. And you are my witnesses of these things. Behold, I send the promise of my father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are endued with power from on high. So the plan was to have the gospel go to uh, everybody at the end of the day, but it had to be done in a particular order. The Jews were to receive the gospel first, then the Gentiles. Okay, we know 
that they were to go to all the world because Jesus uh, had given them the Great Commission in Matthew 28. That was the ultimate goal. But again, there was this order that was happening. here, And we see this throughout the book of Acts, right? There's this focus on the Jewish nations first, right? There's this focus on the Jews. And then we see like Paul shaking off his sandals once the Jews rejected and said, we're just going to the Gentiles. Now, that didn't mean they didn't teach the Gentiles. They were teaching to everybody. However, uh, their focus was to stay uh, focused on the Jews, right? And that was at least before Pentecost. That was the ultimate focus, right? There was a particular order that was happening here as it relates to where um, the gospel uh, went out to. Okay, so the sign of Jesus' message going into all the world was tongues and prophecy and other gifts coming uh, with the authentication of that message. Okay, so everybody in Jerusalem heard people speaking in their own language, implying that there were Gentile nations there, right, that weren't just Jews. So the message was now going global. The Spirit was working in all these different nations. It wasn't just the Jews anymore, okay? And this is part of uh, the Joel reference that Peter provides, and in the context is the Spirit's work in making people do these wonderful things, which included tongues. So no longer would the gospel be just for the Jews, okay? But whoever believed in Jesus would be saved, and these special works were tied to that transition. So once the church was established and that mission was done, um, of showing that tradition transition had occurred, the apostles' works were authenticated. There was no need uh, for that gift any more. And we do see uh, in Acts two twenty one uh, Joel's ultimate goal here. Right, your sons and daughters will prophesy, and obviously that included tongues because Peter was using that passage in Joel to explain why people were speaking in tongues. People thought they were drunk. He said, no, 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 no. This is fulfillment of prophecy from the Old Testament. Um, but Joel ends, essentially ends saying, whoever, you know, that whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is tied to this global expansion of the gospel going out. It's a sign of showing uh, the gospels going out, which obviously would include the churches being established and set up. No longer just for the Jews, it's for everybody. Now the church is here, okay? So it's important to, to understand this gift in light of its context and usage in the New Testament church. Now, Old Testament usage of tongues um, would have been a little bit different. It was really a sign of judgment for the Jews, okay? It was a sign of judgment for uh, the Jews. A pagan nation would come, they would speak uh, a foreign tongue, the Jews knew that they were in trouble. Okay, so you can imagine that Jews who heard this, uh, saw this phenomenon in Pentecost uh, and knew those Old Testament scriptures um, about foreign nations coming to judge them who spoke a different tongue. Uh, it probably didn't sit well with them. It probably didn't sit well with them. Okay. Uh, now, when we're talking about the ending of the gift of tongues, I don't find the argument, and I don't know how many or if any people argue this, but I just want to put this out there anyways, um, just in case somebody does. But I don't find, uh, I don't think it would be helpful to use the closure of the canon as proof that tongues have ceased. I don't think that's a very good argument or it's convincing. Um, the tongues argument needs to be addressed on the merits of the gift itself, okay, and not whether it interferes with the completion of the biblical canon. Uh, I think uh, we have to be careful about that, okay? I think it misses the point. You could technically argue that one could receive revelation from God through tongues that is not canonical scripture, which doesn't violate the principle of a closed canon, technically speaking. So, again, I just don't think that's a very convincing argument um, if anyone is making that. Uh, I think we have to argue for the ending of uh, these extraordinary gifts, or at least use in an extraordinary way, uh, as it relates um, to the merits of the gift itself, okay? That's important. Where was the gift tied to? What was its intention? Is its intention fulfilled? Okay, then it's easily uh, moved off the scene. Uh, let's see, Reform Baron. Yeah, God definitely did a reversal when giving gift of tongues. Like you said, the Old Testament judgment passed and all showed Babel scattering people. The New Testament brings God's people um, together. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. It was used to bring people together, uh, and I think it would have 
confused the Jews more than anybody else because it was, um, you know, they're probably like, wait a minute, what's happening here? These are foreign nations. They're all speaking of something I don't understand. Oh, boy, God must not like us, you know, must not be very happy with us right now, uh, which, of course, he wasn't. Um, but, uh, yeah, ultimately, it did bring people together. That's a that's a very good point. It kind of did the reverse of, of what uh, it had done for the Jews in the past. Instead of dividing them, it united people uh, under Christ by helping all of these different nations to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, bringing them together under the new covenant. Yep, good point. Okay, so that's tongues. That's just a very, very brief overview of, of tongues. Now, looking at new revelation, okay, prophecy, but I'm, I'm kind of putting it under prophecy under the heading of new revelation because I want to talk about the New Testament canon as well. Okay, so when we're talking about prophecy, we see prophecy being rooted in the Old Testament with prophets, you know, taking the words from God and then giving it to the people of God or to whoever it might be. Okay, now Robinson uh, in his book on page three, he says, quote, the essence of prophetism is always defined in the Bible in terms of this speaking forth of the very word of God, end quote. So prophecy is just simply bringing forth the very word of God in its essence, right? You're speaking the word of God, either to the people of God or whoever is receiving the message. They are receiving the word of God. You are the vessel that is speaking forth that, okay? So it's it's God speaking through his chosen vessel to bring the word of God to whoever it might be, okay? So it's just a means of communicating the word of God, Um to the people of God. And historically, in, in, in the biblical sense of the term, um, as it was understood, uh, it would be God speaking uh, inspired revelation either to a prophet um, who is specifically with the office of prophet um, or to an apostle who would act as a prophet in that sense too. Okay. Uh, we can see examples of this. Numbers 12.6. Then he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet... Among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak to him in a dream. Okay, so God is going to reveal himself to these people in some specific way. Uh, Exodus 7, 1 through 2. So the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you as God to Pharaoh, and Aaron your brother shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and Aaron, your brother, shall tell Pharaoh to send the children of Israel out of this, out of his land. Okay, so Aaron was the mouthpiece for Moses. Remember, Moses had complained to God, I'm not a very good speaker. I'm not going to be, you know, Moses in his whiny attitude, uh, complaining to God. So Aaron would speak on behalf of Moses. God would speak to Moses. Moses would tell Aaron, and then Aaron would be the mouthpiece. He was the prophet, so to speak on behalf of Moses, giving the words of God to Pharaoh. Okay. Uh, and then if we look in the New Testament, we can see 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. And we, and we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men, of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. So prophecy was never given to men on their own merits. Okay, it was God working in them to take the word of God uh, to the places that they needed to be. Okay, so they were given this revelation from God Himself, the Holy Spirit breathing forth uh, words to them, and then they relayed them uh, as needed. Okay, so this means that Scripture is. Uh, you know, immediate revelation. It's inspired revelation, um, you know, given directly to his special vessels. Okay. Now, what about prophecy for today? Okay. Uh, since prophecy is listed in Acts 2, in Joel's reference to being part of that special outpouring of the, uh, the Spirit of the Church, you know, I would put this gift at, in its extraordinary sense, along with tongues and being fulfilled. Okay. Because uh, in its extraordinary sense, it was used to relay inspired words of God uh, to the recipients, which we don't believe as Christians, uh, at least as Orthodox Christians, happens today where God ins gives inspired scripture to um, others. Okay, 
So once the purpose was fulfilled, there was no need for it. Um, but however, I will say, I think that prophecy in principle continues through the preaching of the word of God uh, in churches, primarily through the man of God who gives the word Sunday after Sunday to the people of God. Okay. Uh, and I think we have to distinguish between that inspired prophetic extraordinary method of prophecy and ordinary method of prophecy, right? Because at the end of the day, prophecy is not, uh, you know, in its technical meaning, biblically speaking, is not only extraordinary. The essence of prophecy is just telling the word of God, uh, you know, as it's presented to you, uh, the immediate revelation that was given to prophets in the Old Testament, for instance, was an extraordinary use of an ordinary means, okay? So I think that's how we have to look at it um, as it relates to prophecy. Uh, so if I can say my pastor is prophesying, I only mean by that that he's preaching the word of God. He's taking the word of God and giving it to the people of God. I'm not saying that he's receiving inspiration from God and, uh, you know, somehow relaying personal inspiration that he received from the Holy Spirit outside of Scripture and giving in that to us. He's just simply giving us the Word of God from the pulpit, uh, and you can technically say uh, that's prophecy, okay? Uh, I think that's important to understand the difference between the ordinary and the extraordinary usage of that um, particular gift, okay? So that would mean that preaching and teaching of the Word is prophecy proper. Okay, but I just want to make that hard distinction there. Now, when we're talking about the canon of Scripture, you know, we want to ask, does God reveal himself today to his people? Absolutely, he does. We just have to qualify that a bit. Um, we know that God shows himself through his word, his active and living word, Hebrews 4.12. And then he, generally speaking to everybody, still reveals himself through creation and conscience, Romans 1.18-32 and chapter 2, 14 through 15, okay? So those forms of revelation do not cease, and I, what I mean by that is that the Word continues to speak to us, and God continues to proclaim himself through his created order, okay? So as long as the, the earth is here, those two things are going to happen, all right? His written Word is going to continue to proclaim itself uh, in whatever way uh, that God does that, and the natural order is going to continue to proclaim itself uh, and declare the glory of God and condemn the world uh, in terms of the knowledge of God. Okay. However, we should not assume that any immediate or inspired revelation uh, will come. Okay. We do know, at the very least, in terms of the Holy Spirit's working outside of Scripture, uh, we do know, we can see this from at the very least, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith talks about the illumination of the Holy Spirit, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And we see this principle in Second Corinthians 2, 9 through 12. Uh, the things of God are spiritually discerned. And so the natural man cannot understand those things apart from the Spirit of God opening their minds and their hearts to them. Apart from that, they're just merely empty words and they are foolishness to uh, the pagan man. Okay, so we can't understand the words of God by merely hearing and reading them. They must have the Spirit opening our minds to them, okay? Now, the Spirit's illumination is not immediate revelation. It's not God giving us some kind of new revelation apart from His Word. It's the Spirit working to help us to understand these things, helping our faculty, our minds, and, our, and opening us up, spiritually speaking. I mean, ultimately, it's salvation, Um that has to happen in order for us to truly understand uh, these the, the Word of God, you know, because the pagans do not. So it could be through regeneration, um, and certainly after the fact, as it relates to the Christian life, the Spirit is the one who must reveal these things to us, okay? That's very important. So how does that relate to the canon of Scripture? Well, we know Scripture is sufficient. We have 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17, um, and sufficiency isn't just applied to the Old Testament, even though Paul certainly would have had that in mind primarily, okay? Uh, but I think he's talking here that 
scripture is as a category is inspired and sufficient and not just the Old Testament. I think I saw James White had said something about that a while back when defending the sufficiency of scripture, uh, that it wasn't just about the Old Testament. Okay. Now that doesn't in and of itself solve the problem of new immediate revelation from God. Okay. We know that there were other things that Jesus did while he was on earth, John 21, 25, which likely included teaching others. Okay. And the scriptures do not include the prophecies of people at the church of Corinth, the revelation through tongues, although they weren't canonical, were immediate revelation from God as per the nature of prophecy at the time. Okay. Uh, so we have to be careful not to just say, well, scripture is sufficient, and then forget that, well, scripture was being written at the time of that writing, um, and the tongues were being still used, and, and pro extraordinary prophecy was still being used, and immediate revelation was being given to uh, ordinary Christians who were prophesying and giving tongues. So that doesn't prove anything in and of itself. I think you have to, again, go back to the usage of the gift and taken on its own merits in terms of its context and its usage and argue from that perspective. Um, but we still uh, believe in the sufficient scripture. Uh, and again, revelation in terms of immediate revelation in the new Testament era was part of the church's establishment. Okay. Again, acts two is key here since the aspect of the extraordinary aspect of prophesying and tongue speaking were both uh, part of revelatory, uh, the revelatory mediums for immediate revelation. Okay. They revealed God's will directly to the people of God by having revelation go to certain individuals directly. Okay. The old Testament was already done and the new Testament was still being written. And scripture was just simply a form of prophecy in this extraordinary form of activity that was tied to the special work of establishing um, the church. So all that was needed for the church would have been given to them. They had everything they needed uh, and then we also have, you know, the pattern of special gifts throughout the book of Acts um, and that pattern um, being there as well. And I want to read a section here real quick from uh, Robinson's book that I think might be helpful. Uh, he says the pattern of the manifestation of the gifts relate. And this is from page 73, by the way. Uh, the pattern of the manifestation of the gifts related to new revelation therefore, provides a rationale for the cessation of these particular gifts of the Spirit. Once the process of advancement has come to its final stage, no need exists for the continuation of confirmatory gifts. Uh, and on, you know, he, for a couple of pages, he goes, you know, talks about through the book of Acts, um, how gifts were used in, you know, special ways that really uh, don't apply for today especially in the, the confirmatory aspect of it. They were confirming the apostles' message, authenticating them, which is obviously tied to the, the establishment of the church, but their, their method is complete. Their usage is complete. They're no longer needed. Okay. Uh, and number three, we've, we find revelation finding its culmination in Jesus Christ. Okay. If we... Uh, Robinson says this on pages 52 and 53 of his book, quote, the end goal of revelation is not the perpetual experience of revelation itself. Revelation instead is a means to an end. It is the way by which the eternal God makes himself known to sinful men who are hopelessly lost apart from his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation has as its end the making known to men of the one and only God, in Jesus Christ, whom he has sent. So far as the present form of man's existence is concerned, the end has come. The goal of revelation has been realized. In Jesus Christ, revelation from God, insofar as the present era is concerned, has reached its climax. Through knowing him, sinful man today reaches the limit of his capacity to know personally his creator and redeemer. And I, I think this is grounded in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through Two, uh, which says God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the worlds. So Christ is really the climax of all revelation that we have. OK, so God is not speaking through a succession of prophets anymore. He has given his final word in Jesus Christ. 
He's given us everything we need to know about God. Since those who have seen Christ have seen God, John 14, 9. Uh, you know, as we're looking to Jesus Christ, we see him and he gives, he reveals uh, the Father to us. So we can see Christ in as much as the Spirit has revealed him to us. So there's really nothing else to give at that point. He's provided us all that we need. And you can see this concept of Christ really having all that we need uh, in terms of the final word from God. You can see John Owen talking about this in his commentary on uh, the book of Hebrews um, as well. Christ's revelation of the Father will prove there is no more revelation to give, no more prophets with many prophecies that are happening one right after the other, God having to keep uh, revealing himself. No, it's all culminated in Jesus Christ. It's all culminated in Jesus Christ. Now, the above, what we just talked about, has to be coupled with uh, the notion of the establishment of the church. I don't think that in and of itself can prove anything, again, because Scripture was still being written, and new revelation was still being given. Immediate revelation was still being given to the church at the time of the writing of Hebrews. Uh, so we, uh, we have to be really careful about that. So coupling that in terms of who Christ is, and he is the final word from God, with the fact that the church is being established and has been established, uh, we have a very solid argument to say that, uh, you know, the, the gifts, the extraordinary gifts are no longer uh, being utilized today. Okay, so simply saying that Jesus is the final word doesn't prove that the new canonical revelation uh, won't continue. So we have to be really, really careful about that. So that's the theological argument. I just threw a lot at you guys, um, but I hope that's helpful. Now I want to I want to shift from the theological to the historical a little bit to a historical theology um, to talk about uh, what did the reformed bring to this discussion. And this isn't exhaustive. This is just hitting some high points. Um, you know, looking at I you know I hold to the second London substantially to the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Okay. Um, if we look at chapter one, paragraph six, and I think the Westminster Confession also reads this way. I think it's word for word, and I could be wrong about that, but uh, I believe that it is. It talks about the word of God being put unto writing. Okay. Uh, it And I won't read the whole thing, but I'll read part of it here. It says, which makes the Holy Scriptures to be the most necessary, those former ways of God revealing his will unto his people now being completed. So God is not revealing himself in immediate revelation uh, to the people of God. That has ceased, okay? However, that doesn't really answer uh, what everybody thought about the issue, um, at least as it relates to the Westminster Confession of Faith and the overall Puritan tradition. The Reform were not monolithic on this issue, okay? Simply because the Reform believed in the sufficiency of Scripture does not mean they all held that there was no continuation of spiritual gifts from the time of the apostles. Now, if we look at Milne's book here, page 137, page 137, uh, he says, even George Gillespie, who argues for the continuation of a form of extraordinary prophecy, avoids using this text to sanction it, for he understands Acts 2, 17 through 18 to be a record of the fulfillment of Joel 2, 28 on the day of Pentecost. And then skipping down, he says, for most, the contemporary use of Joel's prophecy was consistent with cessationism. So I, I think you can see the general understanding um, among Puritan uh, reformedom would have been a cessation of uh, those gifts. Okay, so again, we can even see here that Gillespie, a Westminster divine, at the very least left the door open for extraordinary prophecy. Uh, which does imply some sort of continuation of uh, special gifts as found in the New Testament. But even so, he was tempered. He was careful. Okay. But the fact that he left that door open, you know, kind of raises some eyebrows. Okay. Uh, so I think we have to be careful that we don't assume that the Reformed had all their spiritual ducks in a row and that they all believed the same uh, things. Not necessarily. Okay. They were men who were influenced by their time and their day. And they had to work through these different issues as they came about. They, you know, were 
probably reacting to certain cultural events around them in the theological space, reacting to dissenting views and trying to work through these different issues. They had to wrestle with theological issues as we do today, maybe even more so back then because of the the unification of church and state and what that meant too. They weren't supermen. And we should also be willing to simply, you know, go the other way if they diverge from scripture and not just assume that because they're reformed, they must have gotten it right. We have to be careful of that too. Um, so it it seems to me at least that whatever you know, that Westminster Orthodoxy was adamant that whatever spiritual gifts continued, they did not provide immediate revelation, at least for the most part. The scriptures were the final authority with these gifts functioning under scripture. Okay. Um, if we look at, I think an example of this is uh, Francis Chanel. If we look at page 144 here from Milne's book, page 144, he quotes Francis Chanel, uh, who I think was a fantastic uh, Westminster divine and had some really helpful stuff. Uh, he quotes Chanel. Uh, he says this, quote, Our faith is not built upon the revelation of angels, but upon the word of God, that word that stands forever. We, he urges, must not expect such unwritten revelations as were vouchsafed to Abraham, because the whole counsel of God, his royal will and pleasure, do now stand upon record as his perfect law. So you can see this understanding of the, the word of God. Everything we need is here. God's revealed will has been given to us. Okay. Um, in, in Milne on page 145, he does seem to suggest that there were those who did believe in further revelation, you know, but I could be wrong on that. I think the general consensus that you're going to find among the Puritans and especially the Westminster divines is this understanding that God's word as we have it is the final word. We don't need anything else. Uh, immediate revelation has ceased. Okay. Um, if we look at page 153 real quick, he talks about what uh, continuationism may have looked like among the 17th century uh, reformed. Uh, he says, quote, there were five varieties of potential continuationists, though the categorization of each is only tentative and subject to discussion. There were those who, number one, supposed that angels communicated to human beings through dreams. Number two, believed that pious individuals when dying had a unique insight into the, div into the divine will. Number three, maintained a belief in the divinatory nature of dreams, but recognized that, there, uh, that this was not the view of Reformed orthodoxy. Number four, were ambiguous toward the whole matter of revelatory dreams. And five, were openly and decidedly continuationists. So at the very least, this shows that there was, you know, this diverse understanding of these things uh, among the Reformed. Um, so, you know, we can take that for what it's worth. Now, we've talked a little bit about immediate revelation versus immediate revelation. And this distinction is something that, uh, you know, the, the Puritan tradition had to deal with. Immediate revelation being that which comes from God directly. Uh, it's inspired language. Mediate, you know, could is through a different means that's not given directly to the specific uh, person. So that could be, you know, you're reading scripture, you're receiving mediated language. It's not coming directly to you from God uh, via anything else. Um, I think that Jim Renahan does a really good job of laying out this distinction. And in fact, Jim cites this quite a bit. And I think for his, uh, he might do that here for his discussion surrounding immediate versus immediate revelation but jim relies heavily on this book for his discussion of the cessation of uh, some kind of cessationism uh, among the second london baptist confession of faith so that's just a little factoid there um, but this difference was key to understanding the differences in how god uh, speaks God speaks through his word or maybe through some other mediated means such as preaching, but not directly in an inspired sense or to a person directly. OK, so at the very least, most Puritans and most Westminster divines, uh, based on my reading of Milne, would have understood immediate inspired revelation to have ceased. OK, to have ceased. Um, one stark example, though, which I thought I kind of. You know, you kind of roll your eyes at this. But Richard Baxter, uh, those of you who 
know much about Baxter. Baxter denied uh, a, an orthodox understanding of justification. Uh, somehow he was still considered among the, the Puritan tradition, even though he did this. Um, so I guess I'm not really surprised that he believed in the continuation of uh, immediate revelation. Uh, and there's a quote by him on 159 of Milne here that I want to read. This is Richard Baxter. Quote, it is possible that God may make new revelations to particular persons about their particular duties, events, or matters of fact, in subordination to the scripture, either by inspiration, vision, or apparition, or voice. Okay, and then we even see a Westminster divine echoing uh, uh, Baxter's views here, William Bridge, um, although Bridge clarifies it some. Uh, he does clarify it, but again, you can see that there's this this tension there among the reform. They're trying to work these things out, and Baxter is kind of in his own little world. Uh, Baxter had had multiple issues. He had issues on the atonement. He had issues of justification. Again, I don't understand why he's considered part of the Puritan tradition, but he is. So I'm not really surprised that Baxter, you know, took a, a more radical view on the understanding of gifts. Okay. One thing that's interesting that Milne points out is that there were those in the Puritan tradition, um, at, at least that believe that lots played a role in finding God's will. Uh, it, I found that to be really interesting. It, it just, again, it just shows you that these were men who were trying to work through these thorny issues, and maybe there were some cultural influences here. Okay. So you can look at page 180, 182. He discusses the sum. And then as it relates to prophecy, the majority view among the Puritans was that extraordinary prophecy, as we see in Acts, uh, mentioned in Acts 2 with Joel and seen in 1 Corinthians 14, had ceased, and that the gift of prophecy continued in an ordinary way, like I described earlier. Um, they did not see a substantial difference between the essence of extraordinary prophecy uh, with, say, preaching. Both were bringing the word of God to the people of God and the written word or mediated and other extraordinary yet both, you know, bring God's word to the people of God. And again, Milne here, uh, he quotes Samuel Rutherford, uh, who says, quote, these extraordinary prophets and our ordinary prophets and pastors differ not in specie in nature. So he's basically saying the, the essence of prophecy does not, change between the extraordinary use of the gift and what a pastor would do on any given Sunday, right? They're, they're not difference in essence, species in nature, right? Uh, it's just a different form of the particular ordinary gift, okay? So that's, that's important um, to realize. So that's just a very high overview of just some of the historical realities in the Reformed tradition surrounding uh, the continuation of gifts and cessationism, okay, um, that, you know, I, I hope can help clarify the discussion. I think it's helpful, again, to talk about these historical realities when we're dealing with this. Um, you know, one thing about the Reformed and the Reformation in general is you see early on, like with Luther, Melanchthon, uh, Bootser, some of these early Reformers, they're, they don't have everything worked out yet. In fact, Luther would have been a Roman Catholic had he not been excommunicated uh, in the 1520s. He would have remained in the Roman Catholic Church. He didn't have everything uh, worked out yet. He just didn't. Um, or I should say that Luther likely would have remained in there. Um, uh, I guess it would have just depended on the situation. But he was not... He didn't leave because he wanted to. He left because he was forced out. Um, but they didn't have everything worked out yet. Not all the implications, not all the not all the, the thorny issues worked out. And although the post-Reformation period in the 17th century saw a greater understanding of the groundwork that was laid by Luther and those early reformers, you do see still uh, issues that were being hammered out and had to be dealt with and, and uh, resolved. Uh, so church history is not, is not something that's, that's clean. It's, it's not difficult 
or it's not easy to work through necessarily. Um, but it can help to inform the discussion that we're giving. It helps us maybe to to apply certain principles that are being that were being used at the time and say, oh yeah, okay, that makes sense with scripture. I want to take that view and throw out others and know which ones to avoid. Um, so I think it it can help us to make sure that we're having a proper, refined, tempered view of these things rather than just, oh, MacArthur had this strange fire conference and we, you know, we're just going to take everything he said. But not necessarily. Let, let's look at, you know, let's look. Yes, there's good things I think that we can take from his work, but let's look at what our tradition has addressed with these things and how can we apply, what can we learn, um, and not just simply take a modern understanding um, of it without these other um, these other things that we need to consider. But anyways, I hope this discussion has been helpful. A thorny issue, a controversial issue, um, but I hope this has provided some clarity and can um, you know whet your appetite for further study of these things. Um, but with that, I think we will close off for today. Thank you for joining me today. Have a great rest of your weekend and Lord's Day. And Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Take care.